from Blossom Village on Jeju Island. This is the Korea File, a weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, Seoul's punk community. DIYZ in Broken Korea celebrates its 10th anniversary, plus rules for urban explorers. John Dunbar, cult expert, uh, writer, rock aficionado, and urban exploration authority in Seoul and around Korea. I wouldn't say I'm a cult expert. Okay. Yeah. But I, I, I've, I I've watched it closely and I, I communicate with cult experts. Tell me the rules of urban exploration. All right. I actually made a big list. Uh, more than 11. Uh, the first rule is about non-interference. Uh, take only pictures, leave only footprints. And that governs a lot of what we do. It also has a few blind spots. Like There, there are more rules about what we talk about online. But basically it means that uh, we go into a place, we get out without changing it. Um, and really quickly, urban exploration is the activity of... Going to places that are, in my definition, forbidden. And that can be strongly forbidden, like um, by law, or weakly forbidden, like, oh, you shouldn't hang over that railing. I mean, basically, I, I have to expand on take only uh, pictures, leave only footprints. That means specifically we, we do not take objects from the sites. Although uh, there are exceptions, and I made, uh, I tried to enunciate this once, and I came up with 11 rules for not taking things. Basically, ultimately, um, I would take something from an abandonment if I would take it from that place where it's active. So this, this bar we're in right now, uh, I could see myself maybe taking a coaster. So I might take a coaster from an abandonment, uh, unless it violates one of the other rules. Um, I might take some matches... Maybe in some cases, if there's like a big shelf of glasses, I might take a glass, let's say. And I have been known to go to a bar, get really attached to the glass that I have, and walk home with it. Um, but, yeah, uh, ultimately, um, I don't want to have a, a home cluttered with dirty items from abandoned places. Uh, one of the other implications of this rule is uh, we uh, do not uh, break things. Neither, well, of course, accidents happen, but we don't break things for the fun of it. We don't break things to enter buildings, so like I wouldn't smash a window to get in. Um, and also, we do not uh, 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 make graffiti, uh, which can be a bit more controversial in Korea because there is a fairly large graffiti uh, scene here. And um, yeah, the two are incompatible, just like you know, playing with fire and camping in the woods are incompatible. Tell me about some of your favorite explorations. Okay, well, the best place I've ever been was in the middle of downtown Seoul. Uh, there's an area called Pimatgor, and they were working on uh, demolishing it. it. It was like a little alley that just runs like one little alley north of Jongno, the street full of restaurants, bars. Yeah, exactly. A little narrow place. And that has actually existed since the Joseon times when it was kind of an escape route for, uh, uh, like, middle class and workers and stuff. If they, you know, like, if you're walking along Jongno, there's a lot of dignitaries and it's very slow to get by. Uh, so they'd just go into this little alley and shoot up and down, like, from, you know, um, the area where, like, let's say... Uh, like uh, Guanghua Moon is now, you could get all the way to Dongdae Moon on those back streets. And they've knocked down almost all, but, a, but a, a short little area at one point. But yeah, so they were doing that, and one of the buildings that was going was an 11-story hotel. Uh, <coughs> not a love motel, but an actual hotel um, with uh, a, a massage area out back and uh, 
on the top two stories was, was uh, like a restaurant that bore the name Hooters. It was not like official Hooters, but it, you know, that just the name it had. There was like a nice lounge on the top and then like private rooms below. There was even a room where they had like uh, like phone consoles. Um, I'm not too sure what it could have been, but I like to think maybe it could have been for phone sex, which a lot of sleazy hotels offer. Uh, so this could be where the call rooms were. So anyway, uh, in order to get in, I had to climb the outside of the building to the second floor, open a window, slide down onto a balcony on the inside in the lobby, go down to the main floor, lo- unlock the door from the inside, and then, you know, anybody could come in, really. We would keep that door locked when, uh, you know, otherwise. Uh, so anyway, we, we had a lot of fun there, you know. Um, we brought a bottle of wine and some fruit once, and, like, uh, we, we had a nice little meal in Hooters, and, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But it's just so weird being in the middle of this giant downtown community and, you know, having having this abandoned building there. Uh, all the rooms still were furnished with beds. Uh, not everything, like, well, there were TVs, CRT, which, you know, nobody wants to remove. This, by the way, this is part of, I think, the fascination with urban exploration, mm-hmm. that contrast of the lively we lived in, the yeah. happening now, and these shells and ghosts of the past, yeah. side by side. Yeah. Uh, in, in Korea, especially, it's it's very unique in how it's done. Uh, like, if you go to Detroit or something, it there's, there's so much to urban explore because of the, the failure of the economy there. Here, it's it's the opposite. It's a sign of growth. Interesting, right. So it's the yeah. failure of the city in North America. Uh, in Seoul, it's just part of this constant renewal. Yeah. And it's you could say it's failing certain classes of people, for sure. But for the most part, it's uh, it's because it's upgrading. And it's going to bring in, like, it's going to replace the old with, you know, new, young, yuppies, things like that. So, uh, Seoul is a particularly apt place to get to explore uh, abandoned stuff. Um, You talked about brown zones before. What's a brown zone? Brown field zone is basically an area where um, there is, usually it's it's a former industrial area where it's just been left to, to waste. And there are, I wrote an article about seven uh, of these areas across Seoul. Uh, the main one is not, uh, well, the main one, in my opinion, is actually two, around Yongsan Station, where the, uh, the Yongsan big plan failed, and like, all, you know, the, the, the former rail yard um, was, they were going to build uh, a giant, the biggest project in Korea's history there, and now it's just uh, a contaminated land. Um, on the other side, where uh, six people died in the Yongsan disaster, that's also mostly empty. Uh, closer to where we are, actually, in Gwanghwamun, right next to the palace, there's an interesting corner of land that's quite big. It used to be American embassy property. Now it's just empty lot, uh, wasting away, no buildings left. Is this up, is it, is this up near the Seoul Selection Bookstore? Yes, right across from that. That seems like a really dead zone. Or kind of behind it, not across from it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So the connection between brownfield zones and just sort of, yeah, these weird areas in a busy city that are really unoccupied. Yeah. Um, so why, why does that happen? Why do they become these, these voids, these vacuums? In this case, usually it's failures on some part. Failure uh, of? Uh, failure to redevelop. Um, like in Yongsan, it's because the company that was, or the consortium that was redeveloping the area... Uh, defaulted on a multi-billion dollar debt um, and uh, screwed over all of their investors. So um, they're left with nothing and nobody will take responsibility for who owns the land. Corail is like, well, the what's left of the consortium 
should pay several billion dollars to clean up all the toxic waste there. And the consortium is like, well, we don't really exist, so Corail should. So nobody agrees, so it's a stalemate, and it's going to last that way for a few we years. We don't really exist. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a mess. And um, in, in some places, uh, you know, it's legal problems. One of, the, one of the better ones these days is the, the Magok region, which is kind of over by uh, Gimpo Airport. Giant, giant area. Biggest one in the city. And they've, uh, since they've started building onto it a bit more, um, it used to be Magok Naru Station would come up in the middle of nowhere, like on all sides for maybe a kilometer. It was in a wasteland. But now uh, they've actually built city out to one half of it. Uh, it's still the largest. Um, but yeah, these areas, they're just empty. They're, most urban explorers aren't too interested in them, but I find them very interesting to walk through anyway because I'm interested in the space, not the buildings necessarily. What is interesting about the space? How big and empty it is, maybe. And how this can exist. Like, you know, I can understand now uh, how you can have, like, uh, an abandoned neighborhood that's, like, three kilometers long by, you know, one kilometer wide uh, because that'll be torn down and buildings will be built. But, you know, when you have just blank land, that's... What the hell is that? That's... There's nothing there. So in uh, in the nonstop redevelopment activity in Korea, you come across a lot of really interesting shit, like uh, yeah. abandoned amusement parks, hospitals, um, uh, agricultural colleges. Yeah. Uh, give me another interesting one. Uh, there's an abandoned ship outside one city somewhere down south. Uh, uh, no, it's a restaurant that's shaped like a ship, and it's right next to the train tracks leading into the city. I'm not going to say where it is, but if you do, uh, if you do travel down south, then uh, there's a good enough chance you'll see it right before you arrive at this city. Um, it's actually since uh, gotten a bit more famous, but yeah, uh, that area uh, is actually pretty dangerous because some of the walkways on the upper floors are like really weak wood. So um, there's a concern now that if more people go there, then one of these days somebody's going to fall through and die. So this is this is one of the. <clears throat> weird ethical areas that you guys because you're, you're serious about what you do with the exploration that you need to sort of navigate um, new people tend to be unaware of the right way to explore right so what would you tell someone who was just wanting to begin exploration right. and didn't know how to go about it? To be honest, the first thing is I would want them to start on their own devices and get into it themselves and learn by themselves that's how I did it, and I survived. Uh, you know, uh, if, if people come here as urban, experienced urban explorers, then I'm like, yeah, let's meet up, we'll do some stuff. Uh, but, yeah, in a way, like, you do have to prove yourself first, because I don't want to put you in danger. Um, yeah, I mean, fortunately in, in Korea, the only uh, deaths that have happened in abandonments have been just young kids, and, uh, well, I guess also elderly people and one cop. Uh, fortunately, none of them have been urban explorers, but urban explorers die all the time all over the world. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something that takes a lot of responsibility, you know, like you can't trust everybody to go there and you don't always know what a person's going to be like until, you know, they go to one of these places. Like they could turn out to be just a major asshole who wants to smash everything, um, you know, uh, I, I meet up with people, like, let's say I'll, 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 I met up with one guy named Nick once several years ago. I was like, hey, nice to meet you. We got on a train, took a 90-hour ride out into the countryside. 90? 90. 
Uh, sorry, no, no, 90 minute. Okay. Um, and we went to an abandoned amusement park together, where if either one of us were the killer, we could have killed the other guy and, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... What percentage of urban exploration experts are serial killers, John? It's unknown, but uh, we've been struggling to find out why our numbers are dwindling every year. Uh. <laughs> Not just kidding, they're shooting up, but you know, especially, like, we got Instagram urban explorers now, uh, who especially like rooftoping. They'll go to a rooftop, hang their feet over the side, and get a picture of their feet hanging down. That's called ne- Next Level Look Down. Apparently, the term comes from Toronto. What motivates people to do that sort of insane bullshit? Well, in, you mean in the case of Instagram? No, in the, ca- well, in the case of photograph- photographing oneself in like a really dangerous situation. I personally think that is a more an aspect of Instagram, and it just ha- it lends itself to uh, a certain level of competitiveness. You know, like, this person got on a ledge, I want to get on a ledge. This person went a little bit further. I want to get a little bit further. Uh, maybe in five years, people will be, you know, uh, putting on guy wires and, like, hanging over the, le- the edge or something like that. Who knows? Um, I've, I've seen some photography in Seoul that I think was done that way. What drives that? It can't just be, I'm trumping your Instagram photo. No, I think it often is. <laughs> in my case, uh, I take a lot of pictures where I kind of force the perspective so that it looks more dangerous than it is. Okay. Like, if you see a picture where I'm climbing up a ladder and in the background is just, like, cityscape, chances are right below the ladder is a nice, big, safe, open rooftop area. And I just crop that out. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, that's my case. Uh, Like, photographs do lie, you know. A lot of people say photos can't lie, but they do. They do. You can juxtapose things, you know. Uh, You put a 3D uh, area into 2D, and then, like, you just don't know what's what's outside of the frame. Okay. Let's talk a bit about your background. Um, as someone who lived in Alberta for a decade, I think it's so interesting that you were an editor at The Gateway, which is a University of Alberta right. student newspaper. Yeah. This is way back in your past. Way, way back. Way in my past. There was a headhunting from Maxim magazine, Ugh. and they hired a bunch of editors away. This was late 90s. Uh, uh, they didn't hire us away. They uh, got, us, got most of... Uh, Two of us to write freelance for them, and one guy became an intern for there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. We quickly discovered that Maxim is where uh, English majors go to die. <laughs> like, literally, the editor that I worked for, uh, he told me, I get a fucking, like, English literature degree, and they have me writing, editing for a magazine that's basically Oops. porn for underage kids who are too chicken to buy real porn. That was pretty well what he wrote to me. And then he quit. <laughs> From those uh, humble beginnings, uh, you have continued as a writer, and uh, Broken Korea mm-hmm. is a really nice throwback to zine culture, um, and you've been putting it out for how many years? Uh, ten. It's going to be the oh, ten-year okay. anniversary in March. Congratulations. Yeah. Ten years. This is, for people who haven't seen it, and most, most haven't. haven't it's a zine. It's an old-fashioned zine that you create at home on your computer or, or yeah, with I, your hands. I don't feel that it's old-fashioned, to be honest. When I think of old-fashioned, I think of, like, Pretty photocopy gross. art and, okay. you know, stencils and stuff. It, it actually is more influenced by the Gateway than it is by any zine. Okay. Because I learned how to lay out newspapers at the Gateway. And so I... Um, I just applied that knowledge to making the zine. It's the fastest, most efficient way for me to do that. Now, I guess when I say old-fashioned uh, and zine culture, I'm thinking more DIY because it's yeah, sure. this it is. labor of yeah. love that yeah. you create a whole sale from your home with only you. There's no other contributors. Right? No, no, there are 
there are oh, contributors. Okay. Uh, I actually uh, I like to do most of it myself because you know uh, I'm the only person I can rely on to get articles done on time. But I do try to farm off as much as I can. Uh, I also have heavy translation needs, so we do work with translators. I actually started getting involved with Doindy because they uh, are pretty good at translating. Doindy is doindy.co.kr is one of the premier online like magazines about uh, the Korean music scene, um, and they run all of their content bilingual. So I was just like, "Hey, uh, I I've, I'm going to interview a ton of bands, and I need translators uh, because like I I ask questions in English, they answer in Korean." So that means, like, two levels of translation. And Doindy was one of the contributors that has um, helped me make this possible. Okay. I, I also have other just people in the punk scene who are bilingual helping me. I, I have all sorts of writers. Content-wise, you uh, basically talk punk rock? I mean, is it, is it, <clears throat> is it broader than that? Uh, yes. I, uh, to be honest, you know, um, what's the exact quote? But, like... Writing about music is kind of like dancing about architecture. That's, <laughs> right, that's exactly right. Yeah, okay. it's. I think. I think it's something different. No, no. Is it that? Yeah, it maybe. Could be that. Yeah, uh, but that applies uh, because you know it just doesn't work. So, like, what I write about is more the organizational side behind it. First of all, the zine itself. Let's say that we have a thirty-page issue. No, that that's not possible. Thirty-two page. <laughs> um, the first 16 pages will be interviews with bands and stuff like that. Then the back half will be whatever I want. Like, I've written a lot of, uh, you know, my exposés about cults have gone into the back half. I'll interview uh, somebody I just think is an interesting person in the back half. Or I'll write about urban exploring. We had a comic section in one, one issue. Things like that. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, as well as CD reviews. CD reviews go in the back half because that's so where they belong. It's a labor of love? Yes. Um, what, but what, what motivates you? What, what, what drive? What's driving you for ten years to do a zine which has a print run of? Uh, usually per issue, it might be anywhere between like it might have been fifty back in the day to usually nowadays it'll hit a bit more like uh, maybe over a hundred or so, but not over that much. 100. Yeah, I mean it's so minute. Yeah. What, so why? What, what drives you? Basically, as I make it, I discover about the music myself. Uh, I've interviewed, you know, a huge amount of punk bands in Korea and other closely related things. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I know more about this than probably even almost any Korean right now, uh, for at least this form of music. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a learning experience. I mean, I wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't learning from it. Uh, the fact is also I'm trying to support the, the music scene because uh, it needs all the help it can get. Uh, it also, I think at times, needs to remember that there is real value in being DIY instead of getting advertisers. Once you start getting money from it, then uh, it's, it stops being a labor of love. You know, people sometimes suggest to me, like, oh, you should get, um, you know, uh, advertisers and you should get some money from it. Maybe increase your distribution. <laughs> and I'm like, why don't I just go work for Groove then? <laughs> right. So, um... Being someone with uh, sort of institutional knowledge of the uh, years and years of, of the punk scene uh, mm -hmm. in, in the city, I'm really curious about why the punk scene and the uh, indie rock scene don't have a lot of uh, uh, blending. There's, there's not a lot of crossover. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious why that is. So I'm going to have to answer your question in two parts. 
One, why I think they should be kept separate. Two, why they're not as separate as you might think sometimes. So why should they be kept separate? Because people have individual tastes. Like, I don't know if it's the same with indie rock fans, but with punk fans, you know, we have more specific tastes. Like, I, I really like to have a bit of diversity. Like, to me, a, a great show is one that would have, like, some punk bands, some hardcore bands, some regular ska bands. You know, mix that stuff together. Uh, for me, if there were, like, a metal band, let's say, I'd probably spend that outside. Uh, I'd be curious to see more indie rock bands, but at the same time, uh, not always, not all the time. Uh, so it really becomes about, like, you kind of have to, you know, it, like, creativity comes from limitations. You know, you, you have to have some divisions in order to keep things, uh, you know, gestating properly. So, uh, like, what happened with the when Skunk Hell closed in 2008 or nine? This is a now legendary venue in Hyundai, punk rock venue. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the bands decided to go off on their own uh, and, like, you know, shun the idea of a scene particularly because it was insular and, you know, play more general shows like go to FF or whatever. And the thing is, like, there's no community there. There's no continuity. So, um, you know, those bands, I think they might sell more CDs now, but, uh, like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't har uh, promote the right atmosphere for why, punk. Why is punk rock so insular? Uh, partly because we're a community. We know each other. I don't like to call it a punk scene. I, I prefer to think of it as a community uh, because we generally know each other and we are working towards things. Uh, so it, it really has to be that way. I think indie rock is similar. It's just, like, on a, a higher level up. And, yeah, in a lot of ways, the way that we appreciate music is much different. Because, I mean, not everybody gets punk, you know? If, if every indie show had a punk band, that would piss a lot of people off, you know? Uh, I, like, I like seeing the people collaborate, um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, like, um, one of the things that I do for the punk music scene, I manage the Korean Punk and Hardcore Facebook group. If you're looking for, uh, you know, that kind of music and related stuff... We every Wednesday morning we put out a list of all the upcoming shows, and we list them by genre. And we have strict requirements about like if it's let's say one rock show with one punk band, it's like five ba five bands, one is punk. Then we might not promote it, you know, especially if it's expensive. It's got to be a certain level, and it's weird to do because you have to define what punk is. Uh, but at some at, at at some point you have to do that. How uh, do you feel being a gatekeeper? I am. Uh, I try to keep it demo democratic so that I have a conversation going with other people. Uh, and sometimes I'll be like, I don't know if I should promote this one. What do you guys think? And somebody will be like, Oh yeah, oh that's that's you know, let's say uh, third uh, no yeah, third line butterfly or let's say like Apollo eighteen or something like that. They're playing. They're uh, they're worth you know promoting. You know. So oh okay sure why not? Uh, so yeah we've we've had a lot of you know iffy areas like. You know, um, so the the main reason at, at this level why we have to keep it separate, why I might not promote a show that's like all unrelated bands and then Rucks or something, is because we're making recommendations for people who come here for punk. Rucks is another punk band. The main band from Skunk Hill, yeah. Right. Uh, okay, your other reason uh, why these worlds don't collide. Okay, because the people do get along. Uh, about a year ago, uh, a lot of the, like when Do Indie was getting a bit uh, more attention, a lot of my friends in the punk scene were like, "Oh yeah, I don't like Do Indie. Like they don't appreciate music the way that we do," and like it was a pretty ridiculous statement. So I immediately was drawn to Do Indie, uh, and shortly after that, I, I entered my collaboration with them, uh, and then actually so did some of my friends who said negative things about them. 
uh, they just saw it as like these people are in it for not for the it's hard to define sense of community you get they're in it for individuals or I don't know what I don't know what it is um, but yeah so we had to kind of find an understanding and it was very difficult for a lot of us uh, one of my friends was like he's he's since made friends with one of the guys who does a lot of like music journalism you know of like kind of the upper tier of, of indie music and and so my friend was like yeah I get it it's like we do kind of the the low level stuff like you know if, if a band of high schoolers starts and they start playing punk we'll be with that and this guy is on, on another level where bands have to work hard to get to that level and we're comfortable where we are so like there's a lot of little things like that um, there is a lot of other collaboration like there are places where uh, they overlap like uh, at times if you, you go to Yogi Ga shows you know uh, there have been a, a lot of people in the punk scene who hang out there the band Yuppie Killer which is like a, a hardcore band uh, a lot of those guys are well known around the uh, Yogi Ga community some of them met uh, one girl named Amy Shin uh, who's uh, like a I think Korean American I'm not too sure who plays cello and does a lot of weird noise projects, and they started the uh, basically screamo band Eskerat together. Uh, so, like, yeah, the, I mean, collaborations happen. You know, punk as uh, a, a concept, I think, has to have boundaries around it, especially in Korea where it's still defining itself. But uh, the community really should be welcoming, and fortunately, the community here is very welcoming. Uh, so, yeah, you know, uh, there's no problem coming to a show and being like, uh, this is my first time, I don't know what to think. You're going to make friends, and you're going to get drunk with a lot of people. Un unless you don't drink, then you'll still make friends. You arrived in Seoul how many years ago? Uh, December 2003. And I, my first punk show was December, late December 2003. John Dunbar, uh, punk rock, punk rockionist, uh -huh. uh, cultist. <laughs> Not cultist. Urban Cult watcher. Urban explorationist. Yeah. Urban exploitationist. Uh, urban explorer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for talking to Creepy. No problem. You've been listening to the Korea File. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on blogtalkradio.com and iTunes. And remember to like us on Facebook. Tune in next week for Epic vs. Peace Corps with Maria Denise. From Duxu Village on Jeju Island, I'm Andre Goulet. Yeah.